You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. We're going to be picking up where we've left off as a church in Matthew chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, or maybe you don't have a device that would get you one, I would love to invite you... uh, uh, take advantage of the, you'll see a paperback Bible in the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please do me a favor. Let that be our gift to you. Uh, we would love to, to get God's word into your hand and give that to anyone you know who doesn't have a Bible. And, uh, and so as we are, are walking through as a church, the gospel of Matthew, this is the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four gospels, that is literally the word gospel means good news, the good news of the, the person and work of Jesus, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here we are in the first of those. And so up to this point, Matthew a disciple of Jesus is introducing us to who Jesus is by, by what he is doing. And, and then it, what we find here is in this first major discourse, we find out who Jesus is by what he is teaching. Now, this is, as we've shared before, the most famous, the most well-known uh, teaching of Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount. There'll be phrases that even if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer or, or unfamiliar with things that, that Christians would do or say, you'll even hear things here that, that have been appropriated in culture that you may have wondered where they come from, but they come from Jesus' teaching here. And so a few sort of caveats as we, as we jump into what is the most famous teaching, and we begin a chapter today that would be the, the most famous section of the most famous teaching of this most famous person that is Jesus that we get close to what we call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. So here are a couple of those caveats. One, as I've shared with you before, this in many ways we're, we're in the most popular territory of the Bible. That is, there are more books and libraries filled with books about this particular section in Scripture. And so as a result, here's what I, just, I, I say this at, and when we go through any series in the Bible, but I really feel the need to keep repeating it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is that there is nothing I will be able to say to you today that is in any way original. Uh, if I say something particularly witty or pithy or meaningful or deep or you find yourself going, mm, right? Just know, I probably didn't come up with that by myself. There's a 99.9% uh, chance I didn't come up with it. If there's something annoying or distracting, I pro- that, was, that was original. I probably, that was mine. And I apologize for that. In this sense, I would love to, um, as I share with many of you, my study notes are pretty extensively footnoted, but I just want to kind of pour in and, and share in, in, in person here some of these things. But, but if you would love to know more, if you, if you find yourself thinking, man, I want to hear more about that, I would love to, to resource you. We as a church would love to put great books, commentaries, and resources. There are great sermons, articles about the Sermon on the Mount here that I would love to pass on to you. Uh, and so that, so that this, isn't, this isn't, think of this, this isn't like a, a pile of resources that we keep to ourselves. These are resources we want to equip everyone else with. Uh, And so we're going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount here, uh, moving into the most famous chapter of the Sermon on the Mount that includes the Lord's Prayer. We're going to read the first four verses, or we're going to focus, excuse me, in chapter six on the first four verses. I'm going to read so that you see it in context. I'm going to read the last part of chapter five that we went through last week, and then I'm going to read up to uh, verse eight. Uh, And so I'm going to read the first eight verses of chapter six, but we're going to spend the majority of our time 
in the first four verses. So the Bible speaks here about something that we have talked about over the last couple of weeks, about the righteousness of God, and therefore the kingdom of God. If God is reigning and ruling over our lives, then we see the righteousness or the kind of conduct and behavior and belief, and particularly motive and disposition of those of us who have been born again by faith into this new kingdom. The new kingdom that Jesus is coming and making all things new So beginning in verse 43 of chapter 5, we'll read all the way into chapter 6 together. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. May God add wisdom and blessing to the reading of his word today. The Bible speaks about giving generously to the poor, including widows, orphans, strangers, aliens, sojourners, around 2,000 times. Let me say that again. The Bible speaks about caring for the poor, the People who are destitute or in need, whether it be a widow, an orphan, the stranger, the alien, or the sojourner, 2,000 times, roughly. And so, as Matthew is introducing us to what this kingdom is like, this reign of Jesus is like, this is why Jesus, teaching about 
the kingdom in which we are born again by faith, for those of us who have turned from our sin and trusted in Jesus as Lord and King over our lives, this is why talking about generosity and giving to those in need is so essential. That is the kingdom of God here explained by Jesus is in many ways a functional embodiment of the gospel of Jesus demonstrated in the local church, in community, and even in the global church. And living in that kingdom that Jesus has purchased and prepared for us, living in that kingdom that he reigns over like no other king we could imagine, includes caring for people in need. Because after all, when I tell you that the Bible speaks of caring for people in need, the poor, the destitute, the orphan, 2,000 times, for those of you in the room who would call yourself Christian, if you've heard this good news, that doesn't shock you. In fact, that ought to grant you comfort, right? Because that's the good news of who God has shown himself to be for us. That when we were spiritually impoverished, without hope because of our sin, God generously gave of himself to us. When you and I were abandoned and orphaned, he adopted us as his very own. When we were wandering, we were far off, he has drawn us near in Christ. And so when we say something like the Bible talks about God's heart for those in need, those of us who have found our needs met in Jesus rejoice. And so when Jesus begins to talk about how we live in this new kingdom under his rule and reign, marked by mercy and grace, it shouldn't shock us. Instead, it gives us great comfort. Because after all, up to this point in chapter 5, we had a picture of righteousness. Did you hear it in that last verse we read, verse 48 of chapter 5? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Because in many ways, this picture of chapter 5 is, is one of the most nuclear, it is one of the most powerful and dynamic things we can imagine that we would confront the very character of God and realize that He is perfect and holy and nothing like us. To become aware that to escape the just judgment and punishment that our sin rightly deserves would require a righteousness in and of ourselves that we cannot even imagine is revolutionary. And according to Jesus, those who belong to God's kingdom will have a righteousness that we describe here as perfection. Perfection in the way that God is perfect. And so make no mistake about this text. In many ways, this teaching is the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation centuries ago. Because when the church at that time was explicitly pronouncing that one could earn or purchase some part of our righteousness or goodness or standing or merit before God, the weight of this text and its impossibility is crushing and, in many ways, life-changing. Reclaims the need for you and I to have complete and total trust in Christ alone for a righteousness we have not in ourselves. I mean, think about it. Many of you come on a Sunday, and, and there's probably something in you that's like, what do I do? What do you want me to do? And I meet with you, some of you regularly, one-on-one, -on -one, and, and many of you are like, what do you want me to do? What should I do? And this is what Jesus says to you and to me. All right, are you ready? I'm going to tell you what you need to do. I need you to be perfect. And that's powerful, isn't it? Because you might say, 
in the response, wow, boy, I'm really going to need some miraculous help with that. And I'll say, yeah, welcome. Now you're starting to get it. Because after all, that's when worship happens. When we realize we lack in, our, in and of ourselves what we need and then look to Jesus and receive it, that's when true and genuine worship happens. Otherwise, even in some weird corrupt way we'll see in chapter 6, even singing songs and even doing things that seem on the surface righteous and good are actually self-serving and self-glorifying. So he has said that we are to be collectively as a community of people in this kingdom, salt and light. So let's kind of recap what leads us up to chapter 6. I think that it will make it make so much more sense when you see it in context. We're going to go through it slowly, and especially even the Lord's Prayer, because there's so much there. But in many ways, it makes no sense if it doesn't fit into the context of the sermon. So we saw that we are, as a group of people, a community of people, plural, not just individually, but plural. We, we as a people, are salt and light. And that means Christians who are born again into this new kingdom are preservatives. They're, they move towards decay. So Christians are, are moving towards things that are falling apart. Christians are not moving out of neighborhoods and cities that are falling apart. They're moving towards them. Christians are not avoiding people who are hurting and in need. They're moving towards them. And they're light. They're not running from dark places. They're running into them. They're not avoiding dark places. They're not, they're not avoiding those kinds of things. They're moving towards them because now that Christ has preserved our own fate and now that Christ has brought light into our dark lives, we have no choice. We move towards people in places that are in need, people in places that are falling apart. He said that this righteousness has a picture of integrity. That is that we would never do with some part of ourselves in a way that kind of is duplicitous or compartmentalizing what we wouldn't give our whole lives to. And so that means that we don't do anything with our tongues that we wouldn't do with our own selves. We wouldn't say yes or no if we weren't going to give ourselves to it. Because after all, if you do this, if you're, even if not even just that you would be angry or harsh towards a person, we saw in the last couple of weeks, if you're just indifferent to a person, to say, look at a person, and the word here, to cry raka, he says, to say nothing, you, you worthless person. To be indifferent and cold towards a person already doesn't reflect God's character. And you're sinning against the image of God that each of us bears when we do that. You have immeasurable value, and we're not allowed in this kingdom to overlook or demean it. And so we have an integrity of desire as well. We saw this a couple weeks ago. That, that to want someone's physical nakedness but not willing to give our own lives is duplicitous. It, it lacks a picture, and in fact, it, it lacks a picture of God's character for us. And, and functionally, in lust, we're saying, I want your physical nakedness, but I don't want to give myself to you. So I want you to do with your physical body what I refuse to do with my own life. And so there's an integrity of desire that we give ourselves rather than exploiting others. There's an integrity of language that we back up what we say with our own lives. And so, in light of this picture of perfect righteousness, Jesus starts to unpack a way that we can begin to test and understand and live out this new kingdom. And there are three of them that we're given in chapter 6. The first one we'll look at today generosity, giving to people in need. And you'll notice that these three are linked together by, by an important word. And I hope you saw it in the first two. And that, that important word is the word hypocrites. Did you hear it in verse 2? And did you hear it again in verse 5? 
You'll hear it again later when he talks about fasting. Those are the three things. And he's essentially saying, look, if you're going to live a new life in this kingdom, he refers to some things that religious people would have already been doing. If you're going to do this, there's a way that you can do it that's actually hypocrisy. And so the what of the Sermon on the Mount, frankly, is the impossible demands of God upon your life and mine that make us cry out to him for help. The who of the Sermon on the Mount we saw in the last couple of weeks. The silhouette, the ultimate picture that's being painted here is Jesus, who both obeyed perfectly and paid the righteous demand that our sins required. Because after all, we feel the duplicity that's addressed here, don't we? We walk around, I would say, with attention, don't we? Isn't most of what you do in your life trying to get away from something you feel? On one hand, the brokenness that exists in the world, the difficulty that you experience in the world, and something inside of you that wishes it wasn't the case. Something inside of you that wishes things weren't the way that they are. And we walk around with that tension constantly. The brokenness in the world and something in us that wishes we could do something about it and measure up. That's the tension. And when you ignore that tension, the word that links these three different kinds of practices together is the word hypocrite. And so Jesus demands a perfection, which ought to lead us to think about these things in a certain light. Namely, pleasing God and living a good life is impossible. That may be the most discouraging thing that many of you hear today, and it might be the most important thing, because the worst thing that Jesus says that could happen is that you would leave this place thinking that you could live a good life, that you could be good enough to deserve God's care for you. And that doesn't cheapen grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, that cheapens the law, that cheapens the perfection of God. And you would leave here thinking you were somehow acceptable and good in and of yourself. And what does he say to you and to me? Fine. If you want that, great. Here's what you need to do. I need you to be perfect, just like God. So, Jesus becomes indispensable when we realize that God's perfection is unachievable. And God gives, according to Augustine, that which he commands of us. So just like last week we wrapped up a section on righteousness and integrity, we find here that Jesus turns to a talk of hypocrisy, how righteousness can be seen in the way that we believe we appear to this person or that person. And he gives us then a foundation for generosity and then for prayer, we'll see in the weeks to come, and then for fasting, sacrificing of ourselves. Because after all, we regularly evaluate our value and our contributions based on what other people think of it. And so hypocrisy is when you think God and people see a different you. Hypocrisy is when at any given moment you show, as we saw in the last chapter, a lack of integrity, a duplicity. Hypocrisy is when you say and do one thing in one place and you say and do another thing in another place. Hypocrisy is when you act one way in front of one crowd and another way in front of a different crowd. And so in this passage, Jesus helps us to think through this great hypocrisy, acting one way before people and acting another way before God. 
And so this first verse serves as an intro to all three of these topics that we'll cover. Beware of practicing your righteousness. It's a hard phrase to translate. It's literally, beware of doing your righteousness. I love that, like, do righteousness. That isn't, right, now you already see the, the limits of the English language here, but practicing, living out, acting out this right standing that you have now before God. Beware of doing that in such a way that's before other people in order to what? Be seen by then. So, beware of living and acting in such a way that's aware of or or conscious of or even maybe overly conscious of the way people see you versus the second half because then you have no reward from your Father who's in heaven who we find later sees all things that even we think are secret. And so hypocrisy is living in such a way in front of one group of people differently than we would live in another. Now here's the hard part. When I say hypocrite... Someone who's duplicitous, who lives one way in one place and lives another way in another. The hardest part about this is that you can immediately think of a list of people. And the most difficult thing Jesus has for us is the top of that list. I need you to begin to consider that the top of that list of hypocrites that you know in your life is you. And so, what's the cure for hypocrisy? It's to understand that all of life is lived under God's knowledge, his omniscience. He sees everything. So here's what we'll be building up to in this passage. God sees all, God knows all, and offers us grace anyway. And that's why it's not difficult for me to ask you to consider that the greatest hypocrite in your life, right? no one has lied to you, deceived you, or let you down more than you. And I don't have any problem encouraging you to think of yourself at the top of that list of hypocrites that you know in your life because God already knows about it, and yet God invites us into experience grace anyway. So the takeaway for us is that God sees all. God knows all. And we're to beware of thinking that we can act or live in such a way in order to be seen by others that ignores that we are ultimately seen and known by God. Because after all, God already knows you. And here's the thing, if if you'll sit still long enough and not ghost or abandon the people around you, they'll know you too. But God God already knows you. And if God knows the real you and sends his son to die for you, who cares what anyone else thinks of you? If God knows the real you and still gives himself to you anyway, who cares what people around you think of you that don't even know the real you? God knows it. Now act like it. So the, the passage here is three different categories of what are called personal pieties. We don't use that word often. Pious or, or, or piety, that, that is reverence or, or worshipful or religious activity. But what we find here is that you can do something worshipful, something religious, which would have been the case for these people, the Jewish audience that would have been listening, that caring for others, caring for people in need, isn't a humanitarian issue. It's a theological issue. Because after all, being cared for in need is the story of God's people throughout the Bible. But he gives us a warning, and he helps us define some terms, and we want to do that even a little bit today. Because the same act that on the outside might look like worship can actually be rebellion. 
Think of it this way. You can be religious on the surface and yet seek ultimately to retain lordship over your own life. You can pretend like you worship a greater, higher being, while in reality, that higher being that you want to have control over your life is you. And you can act in such a way that simply retains lordship over your own life, even if that on the surface looks religious, looks worshipful, and it retains control. Ultimately, it's a transaction with God, and it's done not for God's glory, but for your own. And so this is called hypocrisy. Outwardly, it's worship. And this, will, this might blow some of your minds, like what outwardly might be seen as worship by the people around you, and maybe because you've gone to great lengths to look that way, inwardly is rebellion. And outside, it may look like you honor and worship God, but inside, you want nothing to do with Him. It's a transaction. And to outwardly, in this case, let go of money, but to inwardly be cold and pretentious and to use the needs of others to advance your own agenda, to use the needs of others to look better in the eyes of others is an act of rebellion against God's good character. And so, he gives us, a, I think, some helpful terms, right? If, if you can be religious on the surface, this is a warning to all of us, right, who in many ways we're gathering this morning as a religious act, and so if you're in this room and you're not a believer, you wouldn't, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or maybe you don't know. I'm so grateful you're here. Uh, don't be fooled by what may appear to be religious acts of people on the surface, right? You just, you might think more of them until you actually get to know them. And we talk about this with our gospel community leaders. You have, two, you have two options, right? You can be impressive or you can be known. You can't have both. It's impossible, right? Because all the people who are impressed with you don't know you. And none of the people who know you are impressed with you. And in fact, this is the beauty. This is, the beauty of the, this is what makes your relationship with them so intimate, right? You're like, oh, you, you're not impressed with me and you still, you still, you still like me? Oh, that's, that's amazing, right? Oh, now I don't have, oh, I can take off this impressive mask, right? I can just be myself around you, right? And so I want to invite you, if, if maybe, maybe you're listening to this as a, as, as a person who maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I want to invite you to, to, to be careful. What, what you might have thought about Christianity might have been a really bad facade. Hear Jesus tell us what following Jesus really is. And so he says, don't pity the poor. You should never, ever get a sense of merit or self-worth out of helping someone in need. You should never, ever, ever help out of a sense of superiority. Instead, you should help out of a genuine love for God and a love for his image made visible in humans that he's created in his image. So I want to give you maybe some help to understand why you would give generously to the church, to people in need, to friends in need, to, to people who are, who are down and out, who, who, people who can't meet their own needs. I want to give you a picture of how we do that. And then I want to tell you ultimately, and this will seem strange, I want to encourage you before we leave today that you don't have to give. So there are two ways to give, and then we'll see in the weeks to come, to pray wrongly. The first one is to give in such a way that you retain control. Did you hear that? Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, in what? In order that they may be praised by others. And so there's a way to give of yourself that ultimately is about having control over the way that people see you. It's a profound uh, wording Jesus used here. It says, don't give in such a way that you sound a trumpet. Now, 
for multiple ver- perp- uh, excuse me for, for multiple verses here, Jesus is going to use a rhetorical te- uh, a re- this is I can't even get it out a rhetorical technique called hyperbole. Uh, that is, he's going to exaggerate to prove a point. Okay, so hang with me. There are many people in the room. Maybe if you're raised in a, a religious a religious home or religious kind of background, you, you've probably gotten tripped up over this. And I, I'm going to give you some, some freedom in this. But, but take seriously the point he's trying to make by means of exaggeration, right? hyperbole. It says that they, they sound a trumpet, right? Don't sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and the streets. Now, there's no record anywhere of someone like, you know, giving generously in a synagogue or to, or to a person and then like, you know, you know, like, you know, squeezing a horn. I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know why I just did that or I don't know why anyone, anyway, I'm picturing a clown giving welcome to my brain. There's no history of anyone like giving this way, of literally sounding a horn, right? But he's illustrating something by means of hyperbole, right? He's saying like, there's a way to give that, like as you would sound a trumpet that draws attention to yourself. And he's saying evidently there are people who do that. And the reason they do that is ultimately they are doing it for the praise of others, they're doing it for the praise of others. Now, now one of your, some of your translations, it might say literally the applause of others, but this is profound. If you'll go back to chapter 5, if you remember when, uh, when, when Troy was, was leading us through the section where, where Jesus says to his people that as a community, you, plural, are going to be salt and light. And it says that people are going to see your good works and then glorify your Father who's in heaven. That word glorify is the same word here. Literally, they will applaud your Father in heaven. They will praise your Father in heaven. And so is this a contradiction that we're, we're together, salt and light, in which our, our, our deeds will draw glory to God? And, and yet here he's saying, do deeds in a secretive way? I don't think so. I think now he's speaking specifically of how, how we live in such a way that isn't duplicitous or, is this case, in this case, hypocritical. So there's a way to give There's a way to do things that seem pious or religious that ultimately are just to retain control over your reputation, to retain control over what people think of you, maybe even to retain control over how you see yourself. And ultimately what they're doing is trying to control God, believing that somehow he owes you and controlling people by doing something that now you think they owe you. Maybe you would never say it that way, but it usually comes out like, well, I do good things, as if like, now you owe me, you, you owe me, I'm entitled to you thinking I'm a good person. And so God and people must love me, and they must adore me, and they must acknowledge me for how good I am and the good things I've done. But there's a second way to give and pray rightly, or, or a second way to give and pray that is, that's, it, it, that's right, that, that corresponds to the character of God, and that is to give as an overflow of grace. To pray, we'll see, and in fast, as an overflow of grace. You are generous because God has transformed you and melted you with his generosity. And you give because you've been changed by what God's given you. After all, God has given me love freely. And now I have nothing to earn. I have nothing to gain. So in the first way of giving, you're trying to give in a way that maintains control. But the second way of giving. You're relinquishing control in order to be generous. Because after all, there is a way to give that isn't actually letting go. There is a way to give that holds on more tightly. And so, 
people who want glory will use others to get it. And this is awful. Get this. They'll even use people who are in need. They will use people's neediness to feel better about themselves. And what he is condemning here is not just that that you would see and act generously, but that you would never do so out of a sense of superiority, that you would overflow with grace, that you would see the God who's met your needs and generously pass on to meet others, not for the audience, not for the appearance. Motives matter, Jesus says here. And you can benefit others, apparently here, while heaping judgment upon yourself. I'll give some definitions that might be helpful. Um, but we'll start with a question. If, if the ultimate motive here that he's condemning is the desire to get glory, to get praise, to get applause from others, and he would use other people to get it, then it begs a question for you and for me. Who or what gets the applause in your life? Who or what, and we'll see this for the rest of this chapter, who or what gets the glory? Who or what do you want to get all the attention? Is it some attribute of yourself? How smart or clever or, right, or how industrious or practical you are? Is it how attractive or beautiful you are? Is it how old and wise you are or how young and fun you are? Right? Like, what ultimately do you want to get the praise? Because Jesus makes a warning here. If you're not aware of it, if you don't acknowledge it, and the word in the New Testament we would use to describe this is if you don't confess it and repent of it, then you will use people around you to get it. So let me give you a quick definition of what I would describe as buying, throwing away, and then giving. Uh, I, I got to serve. Um, I got to serve right out of right out of college in a church that was an ur- in an urban setting, and we had a a clothes closet, and we had a uh, a food pantry built in there. And I and part of my job description was to help serve in that. And one of the first days I was working in that, um, one of the directors, this woman was there, um, and this, this person came, and this person was very well-dressed, uh, drove a very, 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 very nice car um, uh, that was full of things they wanted to, to, to donate to, to this clothes closet. And one of the directors, this woman, she just said to me, uh, it was, she was just really, like, really cold and bitter, and she was just like, oh, great, another person that wants us to clean out their closet. And I had to, like, I, I have since had to repent uh, because in my heart, I was like, I was like, I immediately was just looking down on her like, you washed up, cynical, old, like, I was just like, oh, I can't believe. But here's what I found out. She was right because there are, there's giving, but then there are two cheap alternatives that are not giving at all. One of them is throwing away and one of them is buying. And so, when a person, in this case, this person, and, and this is what I saw, this person who was, I mean, dressed nice. It's not like they were unaware of how people ought to dress, but they, they proceeded to say, oh, I want to help people and I want to give them all these polyester clothes from three decades ago, right? Like, by the way, I would never be caught dead in these clothes, but I want to give them to someone else, right? And that kind of what, what gets qualified as giving is not giving, it's throwing away. If you let go of something that has no value for you, if you let go of something that you're not using or you don't really care about anyway, it's not giving, it's throwing away. Now, in one sense, 
by all means, I, I love people's leftover stuff, right? So like by all means, if you want to get rid of it, I could probably, I'm a hoarder and other people would benefit from it. If someone can benefit from letting go of things you don't use anymore, very good. But notice, that's not giving. That's throwing away. If you only give that which is disposable, right? If you, if you give money or articles or things that you didn't really want or value anyway, it's throwing away. I think it, by all means, keep making use of, be, you know, be frugal, be, make use of these things you don't use anymore, but don't at any given moment think that what you're doing reflects the heart of God. Here's a second one, buying. Now, the government even knows this. It's called quid pro quo, right? If you give something and gain some sort of benefit for it, that is not giving. That is buying. And this is the other thing we found. Uh, uh, many people would, they were like, they would give us just total junk. And then when, <laughs> again, I do apologize to this woman later, just like, oh, God, I thought you were way off on this. Give us total junk and then be like, can I get a contribution? You know, can I get a contribution credit for this? And it was like, I just remember going, how do I value that? Like, how do I even, like, I, I wouldn't be able, like, this has no value. Like, this, this leisure suit from 1981, had, I don't know who would want this. Like, Maybe around Halloween, the value of this thing goes up because someone might want to buy it. But like, and people wanted credit for it. And many times when people let go of things, they don't actually want to give away or let go of something valuable. They want something in return. Now, I say this because this happens often in the church. Is that we're called to reflect the generous heart of God who gives of of his very self and gives the most valuable thing that has ever existed, that is his very self, his perfect and spotless and righteous son, Jesus, as the Lamb of God for our sin. And there's something beautiful. It's the most valuable thing, not even close to throwing away. And he gives it to people who will never receive it, who will never appreciate it, and never even respond in gratitude for it. He gains no benefit. So I want you to hear the gospel, how it fuels our heart to give, rather than simply be satisfied with throwing away or or letting go of something to get something in return. So, in this case, these people were giving to people in need, but ultimately they were buying what they thought was an increased reputation or standing in the eyes of people. Don't miss. That completely rebels against the very heart of God. And it's something you and I are meant to think about and take very seriously. We talk about this regularly as we want people to give generously to the church because we as a church want to see the gospel serve the needy, right, in our city and around the world with the gospel. The people who who are living without hope, we see and think, How can I live with hope in this Redeemer that I've met in Jesus and somehow withhold it from you? And so we want to resource that. But be careful that you're only willing to invest what you didn't want anyway. We give until it hurts and then some because it reflects the heart of God, the cost of redemption that Jesus paid for us. But also we're careful about when we contribute to the local church. This is the hard part. We expect nothing in return, right? This, this ain't Amazon, okay? You will never, ever, ever, I, I want to be very clear, we, I'm getting ahead of myself that when we put our treasure in heaven, you'll see this in chapter six. Forgive me, I'll just repeat myself. Uh, you will never, ever, ever get a really, a, a reasonable return on investment when you give to Connection Church. 
ever. I'm break. I'm just. If you were thinking like, oh, I want to give to this church because I'll get something out of it, I just went, no, you won't. You will be let down. I promise. Because our treasure and what we give reflects the heart of God. And we're willing to give up personal freedoms and comforts and privileges to experience eternal glory. So, beware of the tendency to actually throw away rather than give, or, in this case, to, to try to buy something rather than give. And be aware of these ways that, of, of, that, are, that corrupt God's generous goodness towards us in the gospel. So, in the end, he says that we're going to give for God's glory. Look at verse 2 all the way to the end of that passage. So when you give the needy, don't sound a trumpet, right? As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. That they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Like they got the praise of others. Great job. People think better of you. Well, that's your reward. That's what you get. But Verse 3 says, when you give, now I love this, you're going to see this in giving and praying and fasting. He doesn't say if you give, he says when. He's assuming that if you, if you know how much you've been given, if you know how much God has given you in his mercy, you're going to naturally give as a result. You're going to be changed by it. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand, left hand know with what your right hand is doing. Again, speaking with hyperbole. So he's saying, don't draw attention to it. Don't blow a horn, but, but in that sense, don't even get any sort of benefit or uh, even reciprocity or recognition, even within people who know you and value you. So, so that your giving may be, as he says here, in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So look how he compares the second passage, right? So we're seeing why we give, it reflects the heart of God. How we give, we, we give sacrificially, not trying to get anything in return, not just dispensing with what we don't value, but in this case, also not trying to seek a reward that's cheap and worthless. And so he says, when you give, there's a way to give that gets a, a temporal and temporary and superficial, literally here, a hypocritical benefit a reward, as he says here, and there's a way to give that somehow secures and reflects an eternal reward that we have from the Father. And so we, how we give, we give in such a way that we, we, we don't get any sort of uh, benefit from it in this life. And if we do, then we think, well, that's a cool reward, but it's a temporal reward, and it's not the reward I really care about. In fact, it's not the reward I want in my own life. And so, Think of it this way, as he's trying to kind of unpack hypocrisy, and the second thing he shares with us is how, how it is that we are known and seen, I want to ask you a question, a question I want to remind you that, I want to remind you that Satan hates. What is the difference between the way that you are when you are alone versus the way that you are when other people are watching? Don't skim past this. What are you like when no one's looking, when you think no one sees you or hears you? And what are you like when you know people are watching and looking? Because the extent to which these things are separate, the way you are in private and the way that you are in public will hinder you from experiencing the reward of a father. You see, there's a way that an employer rewards you, right? 
An employer sees what you do, values your contribution, and gives accordingly. They reward you, absolutely. But you know there's a whole different way that a father rewards his children? I mean, you know this, right? Like, this, this is the, the beauty of, of a father's love. And this is, this is, I know this is touchy. For some of you, like, maybe your relationship with your father is non-existent. It never happened, right? Maybe, 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 you, maybe on the other hand, maybe you have a wonderful father. Maybe your father was here, and you should say, hey, thanks, Dad. I love you, right? But maybe there's some brokenness. In the end, like, your father, as, even on the best day, is an approximation, an image that points to a heavenly father. But on that best day, fathers do this well, right? Like, when, a, when, a ch- when one of my children would come to me with a finger painting that they did in preschool, right? What kind of reward did I offer? Did I look like an employer, an art buyer, right? Like, what is this? What is this smear and mess, right? Blah. No. <laughs> I mean, look, I look, this is beautiful. I'm so proud of you. What a beautiful use of colors. What a creative expression. This is amazing. And so notice, he says, there is a reward to what we do. And there's a way that the world rewards your employer. And in this case, we'll see even later in the Gospel of Matthew, a way a slaveholder rewards. And there's a way that a father rewards. And he says, you are going to operate not as one who was under a slave master or under an employer, you are going to operate as one under a father. So are your motives going to be perfect? Absolutely not. But you can admit that. And like a child who comes home with, from preschool with finger paint and macaroni art, you can present it to the father and know that you're just going to be a, he's going to love you for it. The enemy hates that question. For you to begin to think seriously how you act when you're alone. We'll see later how you pray when you're alone. How you look at other people when you're alone versus how you act when people are around. So take this seriously. What are the things, causes, people that you give generously to in your life? Now he'll say later, like, we'll ask this in the weeks to come, but like, if this is the only time in the week that you pray... I praise God for that. It's a great first step, but you're a hypocrite. You should own it. You should present that to the Father and receive his love. God, I'm a hypocrite in this. And he's going to go, I know. I love you. Come on. We're going to grow in this. But same question applies to this. What are the things you give to? Is this the only religious entity you give to? Is this the only time when you think about, well, like when, I, when every Sunday when I talk about giving generously, am I the only person in your life who talks about giving generously? Is that the only time you think about it? Then friend, you're a hypocrite. And you can present that to the Father like macaroni art, and he'll go, I know, I know. I can fix it. The big idea here is that we look at these words. Did you, did you notice like, I pointed out the word hypocrisy, but did you notice the other word that shows up the most in the passage from last week and this passage and next? Did you see how many times the word father showed up? So the last bit, remember what I told you? I want you to see why we would give. We reflect the heart of the father. I want you to see how to give in a way that, that seeks to reflect his motives. But I also told you, you don't have to give. 
You don't have to give. You get to give. You get to give. Did you, did you hear this picture of a reward? I've told some of you this before. Uh, this is stolen from a mentor of mine, but like one of my, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is a movie called Rain Man. Um, it, it's just a beautiful movie I recommend to everyone. It's about, uh, it's about like relationships in the family. It's about relationships between brothers. It's about caring for someone and, and re- with real ex- exceptional needs. Like there's a whole lot for it. Um, but it, 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 the premise of the, of this, uh, of this movie starts where, where this, this, the younger brother, right, shows up after his father's death. They've been estranged. And he just sits there, and, and the executor, the lawyer of his father, just reads his will, like reads the father's will to the son. And he sits there, and, man, it's hard for me to... Just a movie. Stop it. Okay. <laughs> and he sits there, and he finds out that, like, his father is vindictive, like, like the, you never returned my call. You had no relationship with me. And so he gives, he's like, and so I want to give you, he gives him a car that he stole and that, was, that caused a fight and a split. And he gives him his roses, his prize-winning roses, right? But he has like a multi-million dollar house and doesn't give it to him, right? And this, and this story starts where this son hears the reading of his father's will and finds out that he's been cut out of it. And I've shared this with you before, but my job on, on a weekly basis is every single week you come in here and I open up the Father's will. And I just read it to you over and over again. And when he should have written you out of it, he sent his son to write you in it. There is a reward, and it is an inheritance. It's not the reward that comes from a boss or a slave master who just kind of is good enough by not being cruel. There is a reward that for us is an inheritance. And every week we get to remind ourselves of how God has written us into his will. Look what he has for us. Ephesians 1 and 2 is my favorite, right? Every spiritual blessing. Everyone, everyone, every single one. What about that? Yes, that one too, right? And God has written us into his will. And the reward for us, we will be experiencing forever and ever and ever. So, if you act in such a way that down deep you think you're a really good person and that's why good things come for you, then you're missing, you are missing your standing as a child before a loving father who bankrupted heaven and sent his only son to win us to him. But here's some other things I know about you. If your sense of worth is based on what you think you do and what you contribute, here's some things I already know about you. You are a delicate, fragile, and insecure person. That's why you can't handle failure. That's why you can't handle criticism. Because down deep, you don't know that the Father loves you and, 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 and loves your macaroni finger art, right? You don't know that. Down deep, you know you have something to prove. And everyone around you knows it. Second thing I know is that you are probably a pretty inconsistent person and you go back and forth between being really self-righteous and prideful and really sad and in deep despair. But when the way that you act flows from knowing that you are a loved person with a reward coming from a father then what can anybody say about you? What can anyone take from you? Malachi 3 says it this way, will a man rob God? 
So here's some practical steps. Take stock of what you have and where you got it. Start there. Here's how you can begin to live this generous life that reflects the heart of the Father. Take stock of what you have. What do you got? Is it money? Is it a nice house? Is it just maybe a good attitude once in a while? Okay. Ask yourself, where'd you get it? Where'd it come from? How'd you acquire this thing that you have? And here's my best. Like, you have time. You have breath in your lungs. They're not promised. Where'd you get them? And so one, that's the first step. When you realize where they came from, you realize they're a gift that God has given you, a gift that you and I get to enjoy, then it changes the way you hold on to them. And you can start giving generously. You can start letting go of your time. You can start letting go of, in this case, you can let go of your reputation. You'll have a profound stability when you know you have the approval of the Father versus you will have a profound insecurity when you're constantly trying to win it from the things around you. Second thing, after you take stock of what you have and where it came from, take stock of the needs around you. Take stock of the needs around you. We say it in our church, if you've, if you've seen the need, you've heard the call. If you see a need, it's quite possible God, who is rich in mercy, who gives every perfect gift, gave you a little bit of something to where you can see it and then begin to meet it. Assume that God's love as a father is for your brother and sister as well. And sometimes, I don't know if I'll say it out loud. I think my, my kids are old enough. Sometimes when it's one of my daughter's birthdays, I give the other one money to buy them a gift. Okay, I, I know that will shock them or you. They, didn't, they don't actually have, they're not independently wealthy. They have to get their money from somewhere, right? <laughs> but I, I give that money to them and I go, hey, get a good gift. And I give that money to one to give to the other. Friend, whatever you've got, take stock of it. And the father probably gave it to you to give to your brother or sister. There's some benefit he's given you. I don't know what that is. That's, you and the Holy Spirit are going to begin to value that. and understand. Oh, even if it's just like I can sit still and listen to someone. I can be present. That's awesome. Sometimes that's what we need, right? Are you okay with trusting God with what you possess? Are you okay with trusting God, in this case, with your reputation? Is your only aspiration the, the applause and approval of the Father? Because God is a good giver, and he's given everything that we need in Jesus. And so now we're freed from the rat race of trying to get as much as we can in this life. A life of acquiring and accumulating versus a life of sacrificing and giving. Because in the end, you're just using people and even their needs to justify your own existence. You may be just fixing other people in order to fix yourself wondering what you can get from everyone you meet versus what you can give and contribute that reflects God's heart to them. It's a form of spiritual narcissism. And faith in Jesus and receiving everything he gives us frees us from needing anything from anyone ever again. I'll leave with a warning here. We spend so much time and energy trying to look and act a certain way I want to warn this especially for some of you because there's a great temptation when we gather together to worship Jesus. I want you to consider the possibility that your motives for being here are probably not pure. That'll blow your mind, but there's a way to sing to Jesus that has nothing to do with Jesus. There's a way to attend a worship gathering all around the name of Jesus that has nothing to do with Jesus. Now here's the fun part. That crooked motive brought you here 
Did you know that that ugly, finger-painted macaroni art, because of Jesus, is received by the Father? And he can use your crooked motives to do more than we could imagine. And so I'm grateful that you're here, but I want to warn you, there's a way to do something that looks outwardly worshipful and religious that in the end is deeply and inwardly rebellious. Remember what I told you? God sees and knows all, and he offers us grace anyway. He knows those things. You're not going to be able to fix your motives. You're only going to be able to confess them. And he will receive rightly in light of Jesus all that we offer. Our meager and frail contributions are acceptable because of the contribution of Jesus. Think of it this way. The only way to be freed from the slavery of the approval of others is to receive by faith the approval of our Heavenly Father in Christ. The only way that you'll begin to give rightly in a way that doesn't benefit you or, or like your reputation is when you realize that God has already said more about you in Jesus than anyone in the world could. And so, if God sees all and knows all and offers us grace anyway, friend, there is no need to pretend anymore. There's no need. You don't have to impress anyone. You don't have to act like someone you're not. And now we can just respond. Let me give you an example the Bible gives us, and I'll end on this. It's out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church, and I want, I, want to, I want to end with a picture of this. He talks about the church in Macedonia. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. We'll come back to that. The grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Four. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You've got got to put the paradoxical pieces together on that statement. Did you hear that? They were experiencing a severe test of affliction, right? That's a nice way of saying it, right? Because some of you like, how are you doing? I'm experiencing a severe test of affliction, Hmm." right? (laughs) Right? I'm a mess, right? And yet, what did they have? In the midst of their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy combined with what? I love this. Combined with their extreme poverty. What? They have joy in their poverty that overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is fun. I get to say this regularly. A Connection Church is not a wealthy church, but it is a generous church. We get to give away a lot to bless a lot of people, meet a lot of needs, and see the gospel go out. I love how we get to kind of, I just get to say like, man, this is cool. But look at the real picture that he paints here. It says, they gave according to their means. I can testify. And he he says like, and some of them even, apparently, beyond their means of their own accord. No one compelled them, right? They just knew how generous God was to them. And he says, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So it's as if Paul was like, hey man, you're really poor. You probably shouldn't be given. And they're like, no. We have to give. You can't stop us. We have to give because we've been given so much. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, then, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this. Now, hear what he described, this whole act of generosity, this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, See that you excel in what? This act of grace. Do you hear it? 
their giving wasn't to earn. Their giving wasn't to somehow achieve. Their giving wasn't, now it's funny because, I mean, it's ironic, like when you do this, people brag about it, right? They weren't doing this to get the praise of the Corinthian church, but Paul's like, hey guys, you need to hear about what happened over here. And they got it anyway, right? But they weren't giving to, to appear some way. They were giving as an act of grace. Oh, friend, when I say you should give generously to the church, to people in need, to people in your life who are without, do you immediately think of the shame and guilt that that brings up? Or do you immediately think of all the grace that God has showered on you in Jesus? That in your poverty, Jesus took your impoverished place. Son of man having no place to lay his head. He didn't have an inheritance. He didn't have a house. He didn't have a fortune. He didn't even have, in that sense, a family. He took the place of the impoverished so that you and I would be rich in grace. Let's thank God for that together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you that we don't have to uh, conjure up our own motives for generosity. Instead, we can receive the generosity you granted to us in Jesus. Thank you that it's not on us to give in and of ourselves, but instead it is on us simply to receive. And then watch what you've given us overflow. For some in this room, maybe, maybe for their whole lives, this whole talk of Jesus has just been a talk of shame, a talk of condemnation, how they're not measuring up. Right, even today, they receive the gift of Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. Might they turn in faith from the need to prove, the need to achieve, and might they even now begin to receive all that Christ has done for them. Maybe for the rest of us, we're just so deeply tempted on a regular basis to, to try to measure up, to live in such a way that's contingent upon our external circumstances. Help us to see that the hypocrisy that's in our own hearts is something you mean to heal. You have sent your son Jesus, who was pure in motive and in act. Help us to now receive that as a gift so that it begins to heal our own duplicity. Free each of us from the need to prove ourselves. Might the power of the gospel free us from the need to, to be a slave to our reputation or what other people think of us. God, even in these moments when we gather together, Help us to experience a profound freedom. There is nothing anyone can do or say that speaks a word against what Christ has done and said on our behalf. Father, forgive them. It is finished. Help that to transform our sense of ourselves, of our wealth, of our poverty, of our affliction, of our blessing. Free us now in the way that people who receive everything they need in Christ are free. In Jesus' name, amen.